Hello, Weird Studies listeners. This is J.F. Martel. Every off week, Weird Studies releases a bonus episode for listeners who choose to support the show at the listeners tier. Over the last six years, it's become our custom to release one of these audio extras around this time, when the show is on its holiday hiatus. Please know that the next flagship episode will drop on January 24th. Phil and I are recording it tomorrow, and I'm really looking forward to that. In the meantime, here's something we recorded for our patrons last month. Like all our bonus recordings, it was completely improvised. And like the best of them, its informal format allowed us to make discoveries we might not otherwise have made. We hope you'll enjoy it. Happy New Year, and see you soon. Ah, what a pathetic clap. As always, I remain uh, unsatisfied with my claps. Keep working on um, it. I know. I'll get it. <laughs> One of these days, I'll actually be able to get my hands together. Yeah. Uh, You'll probably break I a finger or the, something, but... Or, or knock over a vase or something in a com in comical a vase. fashion. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> you see, we just before we turned the mics on, we... We're talking about regional, uh, regional variations in pronunciation. Actually, it started with my remarking that JF uses brunch, the word brunch, in a recognizably Canadian way to determine, uh, uh, to denote any late morning breakfast, yeah. particularly a leisurely and full late morning breakfast. Anything that combines lunch and breakfast. In my yes. experience, in Canada, or at least the Canada that I inhabit, mean is a brunch so yes. if you skip breakfast but you go for a late lunch and usually it involves eggs and pork um yes yeah that's a brunch yes. whereas in, but in the united yeah. in the united states it's more likely to involve mimosas chocolate covered strawberries right. shrimp cocktail and and other things that you would not find at a diner okay yeah you can't have brunch at a diner in the U.S. But, well, in Canada, you can have brunch at a diner. Yeah. In fact, I just did. Yeah. Went to the Cloverfield Diner here in Bloomington, Indiana, which is not my favorite. My favorite extant diner is Wee Willie's, but they were closed. Mm -hmm. um, I have much to say about diners. Maybe we could make this entire extra about diners, but um, probably not. <laughs> Every time I try to hijack the conversation about food, I can, t I can see after a couple of minutes you beginning to lose patience. So <laughs> I've never a, noticed that. No, it's like every time I talk, like long time listeners of the show have probably figured out, I, I like food. I think a lot about food. Um, and uh, it's funny because when I start going off about some food thing, it's almost like I can see the timer. Uh, On my like face. the amount of time that I have, <laughs> yes. The amount of time as your face slowly goes from uh, amused engagement to uh, putting up with this. And once, it, <laughs> and once we get to the putting up with this face, I'm like, okay, I better change the subject right. uh, soon. But we were actually not talking about diners, but talking about regional variations of speech, like, for example, the word brunch. And I was about to remark when we realized we weren't recording that uh, it's not just that you find anglicisms unpredictably salted throughout the United States, um, things that sound more English, but not only anglicisms of speech, but of manner. And so, for instance, when you go to Canada, they'll always ask you if you want malt vinegar with your fries, or at least yeah. vinegar of some kind, which is a very common thing to have on fries. And in most of the United States, uh, 
Nobody does that. But in the South, they do. Right. That's an Englishism that has stuck around. And right. so you find things like that, unpredictable survivals from yeah. a colonial past scattered throughout the United States. Yeah. We were talking about how we just recorded an episode on John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, and uh, throughout the episode, the word horror came up a lot. And um, Phil mm. says horror. And I say horror, and it just—it was very conspicuous to me as we were talking. And and uh, Phil and has good I, reasons to to say horror. I agree with his reasons. Well, yeah. this is one pronunciation that I have purposefully shaped away from my natural predilections, because I grew up in Canada. People say horror, but I never liked how that word sounds. Yeah. Horror to me is a vivid thing, and horror—that pronunciation sounds soggy sodden, dull. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't have the vivid punch of horror. I agree. I totally agree. You know, and har- har- if you're going to talk about like the new, the new voice in horror, in horror, the, like what, what, what was it? The, I think they said about Wes Craven or uh, somebody like that, the new something in horror. Like you're trying to sell or, somebody. Or, or right? Clive Barker. I remember Stephen King said this was plastered over every Clive Clive Barker paperback in the eighties. I have seen the future of horror and his, and his name is Clive Barker. Okay. I have seen the future of horror and his name is Clive Barker. See, it doesn't work. So that is one pronunciation. It might be the only word I purposefully pronounce differently than my natural tendency because it has to sound right. I agree. It's an important word. Horror connotes harrowing a little bit. It has like other. Exactly. It's good. But. As a French person, I have to say, horror is a French word. Um, and in French, you say horreur. And uh, so I can't imagine saying, I can't make myself say, it'd be weird now if I just spontaneously started saying horror or very not spontaneously, like deliberately saying it. So I'm stuck with horror. But I want to say something about horror, unless you. <laughs> I think you should actually make a point. I think as an affectation, just like it can become just your say thing. horror. I don't even know no, if I just could... say say horror in the French manner. Horror every time. Yes, every single time. <laughs> I okay, love so the this is a genre. this is a challenge to you <laughs> for the rest of this uh, Patreon bonus. You have to pronounce it à la française. I'll tell you why I wouldn't do that. It's because uh, <laughs> as, you know pronunciation aside, I don't think horror horror. I don't even know how to pronounce it anymore. <laughs> no, I don't think no, horror is the no. right term for the genre. I don't Mm. think it, horror is a very, it's funny because in our thing episode, we were talking, you were talking about all the varieties of horror. So it, you were saying, for example, video draw might not scare you, but it's still horror because it does other things, affectively speaking. It, 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 it gives you other unpleasant affects. Maybe grosses you out, disturbs you, fills you with anxiety. All these things are horror. Horror to me connotes disgust. Um, Horror is repulsive whereas to me what defines the genre and that is one of the affects like horror is part of whatever the this affect is that we're talking about the yeah. the, the, the genre yeah. affect but the genre the, or the 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 zone you know the uh the spectrum of affects um in french one word for it is épouvante which i like because but épouvante means like um 
like what do you call them? Jump scares. It, mm, it, it, mm, it, mm, it connotes that, which is fright, just again, fright. just one more fright, fright, right? Yeah. Epouvante is more like fright fiction. Um, the the term I think is that would the appropriate term would be terror, mm. uh, because terror has an element of wonder in it, which I think is absent yeah. from the word horror. Yeah, uh, yeah, I get what you're saying. I like that. Yeah, yeah, Ter- terror. Um, in French, though, you don't say terror. The the the, the it's funny because genres are cut up differently in the Francophone world. Um, hmm. So there's no there is horror because Stephen King is popular, and so people have they've come up with épouvante as one term. They might have other terms. Might, some people say horror as well. In, in Quebec, we say uh, horror, horror for for horror films and horror fiction. But there is a term in the critical literature which is fantastique. Oh yes. And fantastique means essentially means weird fiction. Yeah, um, that's what it's called, and and it always has an element of what we call horror in it. Uh, it's about some very dark other world breaking into this world. Like all of Stephen King is fantastique, and uh, Clive Barker, interestingly, in this great interview I saw once with him by Pamela Wallen. Remember Pamela Wallen? I don't know. Maybe that was after your time. She was a CBC reporter. She did an interview. She was really a great interviewer in the 90s in Canada. And she did this hour-long interview with Clive Barker sitting in his garden while he was smoking a gigantic Cuban cigar. Um, It was such a good, one of the best interviews I've ever watched. And throughout that interview, he says that what he writes is fantastique. Really? That's what, that's what he called it. Yeah, he was How uh, talk about affects. Ah. Talk about affectations. Ah. He was just owning that. Yeah. That's great. So I I love genre discussions. I love talking about where categories get fuzzy and, and crossover, like overlap. Um, so I all this to say that horror might not be the best term for what we're talking about. So who would have been a pre-Stephen King horror, as we would say? Mm-hmm. novelist who would have been pretty successful and widely read in Quebec. In Quebec? Or just, let's say, French Canada. Whoa. Um, interestingly, um, Anne Hébert, who was one of the, one of the great French-Canadian novelists, uh, she wrote a bunch of amazing classics. Um, I, I, wrote one of her- I confess I have never heard of this person. How do you spell oh, the last name? Anne, so A-N-N-E. Hébert mm-hmm. is H-E-B-E-R-T. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, she was really... Uh, and she, she was published by Gallimard in Paris. She was, she was widely acclaimed. Man, I don't... Uh, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. I don't know this person at all. I feel shame at my ignorance. Yeah, she, we could do one of her... In fact, she, one of her early books, she wrote a book called Camurasca, which is... A fantastic. All of her stuff, her stuff is really dark, but mostly, and kind of slightly magic realist in a way because it's working within a tradition that accepts a lot of magic. You know. Yeah. Um. Even though she's writing after that, um, she wrote a book called the Les Enfants du Sabbat, the Children of the Sabbath, mm. which is about the Black Mass and all that. Oh wow. Uh, it was published in seventy five, so just before, or just at the same time, Stephen King was coming out. There's a and. She was taking a page from the book of what's her name, Marguerite. Um, this is this is actually quite exciting because uh, I, it never occurred to me. Typical bonehead Anglophone Canadian 
Anglophone, uh, never bothered to ask the question, what is the weird slash horror fiction scene in French Canada when you take the big American and English uh, imports out of the picture? And based yeah. on our brief so, conversation so far, it would seem as if there's like a whole tradition there. Well, no, it, it, they were literary. They were authors that we would call literary who were moving into that genre mm, and experimenting mm, with that. Mm. The other book I'm thinking of is a French book from France called, uh, the, in English, the title is The Abyss, okay. Le Noir by M uh, Marguerite uh, Yourcenar. Uh, she's like a famous um, French novelist. And I think that she kind of allowed a lot of other literary authors to start working with occult ideas mm. in, uh, in the, the late 60s. Mm. But uh, in French Canada, I don't, no, I know there were ghost stories. I know that, for example, a huge part of the folklore is essentially what we would call horror. Um, all of those um, Anticosti uh, folklore tales, all the tales of Quebec, uh, the folklore tales of Quebec are really strong. Like they really, really focus on the fantastical fear, strangeness. So it's, it was part of every, like I had a babysitter when I was a kid who came from Northern Quebec. Um, we called her Mammy and there was my brother and me and this other kid used to go eat lunch at her place and we'd stay at her house until our parents came to pick us up after work every day. And she would regale us with tales of absolute horror from, from uh, Northern Quebec, tales about possession, tales of werewolves ghosts that sort of thing mm. so it's like it was kind of part of the air people breathed but i don't know of anyone any popular authors working in that genre i think that really is something that i think stephen king was starting something um you know there is a british horror author that i quite like from the 70s who was kind of like the british stephen king james herbert have you heard of him i have heard of him though i couldn't tell you anything yeah. he wrote I just read one of his books called The Dark, and the villain, the monster in the in the book is just darkness. It's so good. Hmm. It's really good. Um, but I think that type of horror, that type of really genrefied kind of like I don't want to. I, I I'll say formulaic, but I don't mean it. I don't mean it negatively. I think that's an Anglo innovation. Hmm. I would guess, but my exposure to French. Fantastique is limited. Well, I mean, you go, go back to Guy de Maupassant. There's all kinds of stuff like in the 19th century, Baudelaire, um, Poe was huge in Paris. Like when yeah. Baudelaire translated Poe stories, it was this huge sensation. So people were working in, horror, in the decadent movement. And, you know, yeah. it, it goes way back. E.T.A. Hoffman. Yeah. I mean, it's so yeah. interesting how the thing... The 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 referent, the the domain of human experience to which we would attach words like weird or strange or horrifying or terrifying or fear, like that department of human existence just is what it is. It's sitting there awaiting its representation yeah. in fiction. But um the way the fiction landscape creates a map of affect yeah. and divides that map up according to, and, uh, you know, nation by nation or culture by culture will divide, divide up that map differently. And so weird yeah. fiction is, uh, one department and horror is another, um, 
but right. in, uh, the concept of the fantastique, as I understand it, is one in which uh, both those what are held to be separate departments in Anglo fiction are kind of fused, or it's a sing it's a single department. Or think of like J horror, like Japanese horror, yeah. and how popular it is, because their tropes and their the semiotics of their horror is different from ours, and you'd think that would make it unscary for us, but in ways it kind of makes it more scary, yeah. scarier. <laughs> um, so it's it it's a really interesting genre to discuss, uh, because. The differences, the cultural differences that make horror different from one place to another um, don't seem to negate the universal aspect of it. Yeah. Like, there is something kind of like, if you if you hear a horror story from West Africa, it'll freak you out just as much yeah. as if you, you know, it, it maybe even more mm. because- you know, because it's so, a little bit outside of our genre cues. And so it, it, it another- uh, tradition of storytelling will come kind of uh, be ribboned rib rib and bespangled with uh, strangeness that it wouldn't otherwise have if we were a part of that tradition. In a, in a way, you could argue that the weird, let's just take the term weird to encompass all these different traditions, just making a kind of arrogant move, universalizing move here and saying that all these different folk traditions and literary traditions across the world are trying to get at something that we'll call the weird. Well, in a way, the weird is always about, no matter what culture you're operating in, is always about getting out, precisely getting out of your cultural yeah. comfort zone, pushing out of the familiar into the unfamiliar. And so it's strangely enough, whereas a romance writer in like feudal Japan and a romance writer in like 19th century Paris are working with very di different ideas of love. I'm not saying there's not a universal aspect to that either too, but you really, you're playing to the cultural expectations of your time if you want to make people feel romantic, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, whereas the weird, you're trying to make them uncomfortable. So you're trying to get out of your culture constantly. Yeah. And so all these different, extremely localized, weird fiction traditions are all trying to get to the same place namely the outside yeah. of all cultures. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if the designation horror actually comes more from film than from novels. I'd be interested. I think I suspect you're right, but I'm not sure. Because Universal Pictures starting in the late 20s, I think, um, you know, started doing a series of monster movies that still we're still tilling those fields now, like Frankenstein and uh, Dracula, uh, mm -hmm. the Wolfman, the Mummy, all these sort of classic monsters. And universal horror was like a thing. It still is a thing. Yeah. Um, universal is so associated with horror films, the way MGM is associated with musicals. Uh, and I wonder, mm -hmm. and I have made no study of this. There are probably academic studies that would set me straight on this, but I wonder how much the concretization of horror as a genre, as opposed to the literary dalliances with that general vague area of human life devoted to the outside. Uh, um, I wonder if that concretization of it into horror actually is a function of um, the, of early sound film, but I don't know. That's just a speculation. I think 
I would suspect, I know mean, you know the people, the person to ask about this would be Peter Biebergall, who is working on a, oh, I shouldn't say this, but he's he has a project that has to do with this particular uh, zone of the horror world, like the universal monster thing. Um, oh, that's he right. He wrote this, us. he wrote this terrific short piece. Uh, right on right. Uh, his right. his youth reading uh read i forgot what the name of the magazine was but sitting in the back rooms of his parents shop reading monster yeah. magazines and fueling his youthful imagination yes exactly i love that little piece um, yeah I, I tweeted it out on on twitter not that anybody is gonna have seen that does is anybody on twitter anymore i feel like i'm not there I'm not. hardly I hardly ever go. It's such a um, dank cesspool. Such a. I, I don't. I, I haven't seen. I, well, I don't know what people mean by that. It's it's the same to me. It feels the same as it always was. It's oh, it is no. I, it was I, always I a hellhole. Okay. <laughs> okay. And gotcha. I hate myself for being involved with it. No, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm. You know. It's the site has become less functional, less usable uh, since right. Elon Musk took it over. Um, but uh, no, it's, but the dynamics of the site, it's still the same pointless yeah. epic rage fest. It's just like the same uh, mosh pit of um, human folly and misery <laughs> that it ever was. But I, I also um, get the feeling that nobody gives a fuck about it anymore. And that, that, uh, and whatever you're tweeting out, it's just like, you're just talking to the void. So I keep wondering, like, if there's even any point in keeping the weird studies Twitter going, but, but that, yeah. need, but that question need not detain us. We, we met on Twitter, you and me. Did we? Yep. That's how it all started. Uh, oh, I think it was an exchange yes, between you and Graham, yes. Graham Larkin and yourself exchanged and somebody tagged me and so and i responded and i don't think we would have met if i think it was graham who actually like added me in this conversation so well graham 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 uh, once he gets the bit between his teeth you're not going to dissuade him from doing yeah. something and once he had uh i see i told him to read reclaiming art which i think he did and then once he okay. had the idea yeah. that we could do a book event in ottawa with your book he made that happen he made it he, yeah. he fucking made it happen and uh yeah. so yeah i don't think i don't think we can give twitter too much credit here well i mean it was the platform <laughs> well that's like <laughs> saying that the crucial factor of our uh partnership is, is oxygen because we both after all need oxygen in order yeah. to continue to live or or floors yeah floors because we both we're both <laughs> yeah we both need floors <laughs> well i i wouldn't give i wouldn't give twitter that level of ubiquity <laughs> um so i'm rather i'd rather give it a bit of credit than uh, just equate twitter with the oxygen we breathe but uh the the that event was funny because um graham and i actually went postering for that did you like he and i yeah we went old school and uh we yeah this was in a time it felt a little dated if, as a practice at the, even at the time in 2014 or, or whatever, whatever 15 yeah 15 uh but today it would be unthinkable to do that I, who would do that or maybe people still do i don't know uh um, yeah i don't know maybe our listeners my can local... enlighten us if they've if they've been postering at all lately it just seems to me everybody yeah. has so many rules about everything including where you can stick signs <laughs> Exactly. it's like there's no percentage in it 
<laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I do. Th- uh, my local gaming store has still has a billboard with people looking for games and putting a you know a Xerox piece of paper with description of what they want to run with little, and they've cut up the bottom of the sheet so you can rip off their phone number. That still exists. Oh, that's good. That makes me happy that that still exists. It's old fashioned. It still exists. Did your local gaming store, do they have a little area set aside so that people can play games? Yes, but I didn't find out about it until decades after I frequented this place. Uh, And it was actually, I had kids. I was with Delphine, who was tiny, and she had to she had to go to the bathroom when we were there, so I asked the the guy, and he he told me to go down these stairs at the back of the store. And there's actually I I would go to the back of the store. This part I've never seen before. And there's a freight elevator, one of the you know not a freight elevator, a cage elevator. You know those no cage way. elevators, like wow, yeah, I had one of those. That's and it's awesome. Like a, it's like a it's like a two story building. <laughs> um, and then there's this dank stone staircase going down. It was crazy. It was like entering a dungeon. And I go down there and there's a bathroom there, which is not well-maintained at all. And, you know, my young daughter had to use it. And then I peer over and there's a whole room down there with guys playing games at tables. It was super surreal. Wow, I did not know this surreal. place existed. And then, and then I'm like, and they're playing war games. Uh, and this store, by the way, is, this is, this store is a landmark. If you know anything about gaming and you've, you've lived in Ottawa. It's called Fandom 2. It's named after another store in England, which is called Fandom. So they had this Fandom 2. Uh, it's been there since 82 or something like that. Wow. And the same guys have been working there. Wow. And, you know, yeah. Um, crusty, crusty, these guys. <laughs> um, so um, what was I saying? We were talking about how surreal it was to discover this whole area in this legendary oh, story yeah, that, right. that you've been frequenting for decades and you never knew it was there. That seriously is like a dream, like one of those dreams you have yes. where, where you realize that there's another bedroom in your house or something or a whole different yeah, yeah, floor. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'd literally been go- going to this store for decades. So I go back upstairs and I ask the guy at the counter, I'm like, there's a game room down there. It's like, oh yeah. I said, well, um, can, can we, is it, can we reserve a table? Can we, cause at the time I was looking for a space to play in. And he says, what kind of games do you play? And I said, uh, we play role-playing games. He's like, no, no role-playing games. So they'll do war games, but said, not role-playing games. Yeah. I said, why not? He says, role players are, um, in our experience are dangerous people. Um, we've had actual fist fights down there and they refuse to, to leave when the store closes and, uh, we don't, we don't, role players are not welcome here anymore. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) He was like that, that cut and dry about it. I'm like, okay, (laughs) I don't know what, what happened down there, but. (laughs) I, uh, my, my, uh, so I'm glad you asked that question. My horror, my (laughs) horror imagination is setting to work on this. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining how this would be shot for a movie. Like yeah. the, the, the cage elevator, that's key. I like to imagine for a little two-story building, it's a huge, massive freight elevator. It gets clang when you close it and then goes, you, and then you go down and improbably deep. It's like the Andromeda right. strain or something. S- Maybe there are six levels yeah. of game rooms down there. And, yeah. and, and you go and you go down and down and down. And then you're at the bottom. It's dark. You've got a flashlight. And you imagine the, the flashlight beam 
jerkily playing right. on dripping walls. And there's various yeah. creepy sound of fine that the beam catches a pair of pasty <laughs> fish white homunculi hunched over settlers of Catan or something. Yeah. Yeah. And they're rolling polyhedral dice. Yeah. And they're playing <laughs> they're playing this like <laughs> old copy of D D from the 1970s. Uh yeah, it's it's a it's a weird place fandom 2 you should just look it up look up fandom 2 and look at the google reviews and read these reviews they're hilarious how, like it's insane how the main the, i can't remember his name the the guy who works there the guy who's been working there this whole time how rude he can be to customers it's like people write reviews like he about seriously it. does not give a fuck yeah yeah I mean, like I don't know anything say, about that guy, but he's already my hero. Like anybody who still has the balls to be rude to customers in the age of Yelp has got my vote. Yeah, like one person said that uh, he was browsing around. He doesn't like it during COVID. He wouldn't let you into the store unless you could tell him what they sold there. So I'd go in and they'd put this desk blocking the door, and then they and then he'd be sitting at the counter like thirty feet away, and he'd be going. What do you want? And I'm like, I just want to browse. Are you gonna buy anything? I said, Yeah, I'll buy something. What do we sell here? Game gaming stuff? Like, okay, come in. <laughs> there's a well, there's one review where somebody says, I asked them if they had a website, and he responded, No, we have a store. <laughs> there's um Okay, I'm looking it up online. I remember there was uh, something I read. This went viral a few years ago. There's there are many temples in Japan that are both working temples, but that and also tourist destinations. Like they kind of keep the lights on by reserving some rooms for guests who are paying for the experience. But they're still working temples, and there's still Buddhist monks who are meditating and chanting and preparing meals and doing all the things that monks do. And as you can imagine, sometimes there are moments of cross-cultural confusion. Anyway, there's one monk right. who was uh, given the job, I'm sure not because he was good at it, but just the way you get jobs in a temple is just like, here, do this. Um, right. Uh, whose job it was to interface with the public. And uh, he was apparently spectacularly rude to everybody. And I'm trying to find some of the. Um... <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, OK, so a guest review. <laughs> OK, um, hold on for a second. Okay, so somebody writing on a Yelp or some shit, I'm not sure where. We were here in deep winter and outside of our bedroom everywhere was freezing cold. The vegetarian dinner and breakfast was quite unlike any food I've ever tasted. Strange. Property response. Yeah, it's J Japanese monastic cuisine, you uneducated fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm reading, I'm reading uh, reviews of fandom too here. Um, one person, I'm just going to randomly read a one-star review here of fandom two in Ottawa. I've been here a couple of times looking for D and D things. The first time I was treated extremely rudely and had to persuade them to let me in to look at different dice colors or even to give more than a cursory description. We have red, blue, green, and a couple of others. <laughs> Because this guy's at the door. They wouldn't let him in. And he's like, I want to look at your dice. He's like, and it's like, 
What do you want? I, I want to look at your dice colors. We got red, blue, green, a couple of others. <laughs> I went back with someone else, the person goes on, because I was wondering if they got a bad vibe from me or thought I was trying to steal or something because it was so weird that they were so rude. But when my friend went in, she was treated the exact same way. They are rude and unhelpful. And as far as selection, well, they would have to actually let me into the store to be able to judge on that. <laughs> They didn't even let him in. <laughs> oh, God bless him. Um, yeah. yeah. So we've all, sorry. I mean, we've all. We... I'm sorry. I, there's there's just one more. Okay, I'm sorry. No, let's hear I'm it. Sorry. Let's hear it. One more of Phantom 2. Another one-star review. We've bought several games here over the years. Nice selection for sure. However, today we stopped in to get a recommendation for a board game to play with our family. The manager said that he had no idea what to recommend since he only played chess. <laughs> the guy owns a game store. What's popular then, we asked. Oh, that's all been sold, he said. <laughs> as, we, as we left, we asked if there was a website, hoping to browse that way. And the answer was, we don't have a website, we have a store. <laughs> That combined with a table blocking the door when you arrive saying no browsing and a curt, what would you like when you stand outside the door <laughs> and he sits at his desk, all says to me that they don't want our business. So we headed over to the nearby strategy game store, blah, blah, blah. I just love well, this guy's actively trying to sabotage yeah. his own business. I mean, he seems yeah. to be doing everything he can to repel customers. So how is it that they're still in business? Because they're such a staple. They've been there forever and it's the best selection. <sighs> you know, I was the other I think people go for the abuse. I go partly for the abuse. It's part of the experience. He, yeah. 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 He's extremely rude. It's extremely intimidating to walk in because he looks at you with this like he hates you. Um, and then he always pretends he's known me since I was eight years old. Um, and he always pretends he doesn't recognize me until the very end. And then right when I'm sitting there, and he he literally has a, a gigantic ledger that he keeps track of everything in. Like he's, he's always sitting with this gigantic ledger and he's like writing in his ledger. They don't take credit cards. This place is classic. You have to, yeah. But he, I, I partially go, I think people go because of how comedic it all is mm. in the end. Yeah. Enough of that. Sorry. Yeah. You know, the retail experience is not, is one from which all weirdness has been ruthlessly purged. The retail experience is not a very promising ground for a weird studies type conversation. And yet, uh, moving on from spectacularly rude shop owners, which I, I mean, next time I'm in Ottawa, I want to go to fandom too. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I have to experience this. Uh, I'm yes. going to browse the dice and see what colors they are. I'm just going to break all the shop rules. No, but... It's funny though, I was reminiscing fondly, very nostalgically about something that was really big in my youthful years from about age, I don't know, maybe 11 to when I went to college. Uh, Sam's the Record Man and A&A, next door to one another, Young and Dundas, or Young at, not quite at Dundas. Um, yep, and, I uh, remember that. Yeah, and I, for all I know, there's some pathetic shriveled little remnant of one of those stores there but i doubt it i i think they've been gone no. for a long long time but sam the record man had that huge lit up record at the front yeah. it was like a 
It was a landmark. Yeah. It was amazing. I remember yeah. when we would drive into Toronto, you'd see it from like more than a block away and my and mm -hmm. my and I could just feel my innards tightening in excited anticipation. It was not only that I bought a ton of music, I bought a bought a ton of records there. I was okay, so I grew up in Sudbury, Ontario. Um which had some record stores and I actually got some surprisingly outre things from Sudbury record stores, but I was super into classical music. And, um, you know, if you wanted to get, uh, classical stuff, you really had to go to Toronto and Sam's record man was an Aladdin's they had, cave. They had a whole floor. Yes. They had a whole floor, didn't they? A yeah, huge, actually it was a floor and a half. There was a floor and then a right. mezzanine. And then right. when you would, I, I, can, I, can almost, I can walk through this store in my memory, you would go up into this little mezzanine and then you would turn left. And that's, and then when you kept going, that's where all the popular music was and jazz and such. Um, but there were little coves and like uh, nooks, like, you know, it was like old Toronto brownstone buildings. And so um, that had been converted into retail space. And so they're weird shaped. And so there were little bits right. and pieces. So like the spoken word would be jammed into what was, what used to be a dumbwaiter or some shit. You know what I mean? Right. It was, <laughs> exactly. so it was like A&A was next door and it had, it, it, they were always competing and it was very good. They had an excellent um, they had an excellent record section, but Sam's was my real love. And I still, it's one of those places I still dream about, you know, just mm -hmm. like the same kind of excitement that you would have going into a library, you know, the, the excitement yeah. of paging through, you know, like walking the stacks and finding weird, dusty old books that nobody's taken off the shelf since 1923, like the promise of mysterious encounters um, mm -hmm. you know, bookstores can still give you that charge. The Strand bookstore in New York, for example, will give you that charge. But Sam's and A&A, especially Sam's back in the day, so much of my musical life was just like, I mean, I suppose it was all very consumerist, uh, you know, saving mm -hmm. up my money and like, oh, I have enough money to go and buy a record at Sam's. What am I going to get? But like the, just the excitement of it, like, you know, there are all these records from the Soviet Union, um, right. you know, all these uh, really obscure uh, record releases from different parts of the world that would find their way to Sam's. And you just got, and I mean, coming from... Northern Ontario, not really having seen very much of the world. It was like my little passport to the world. Uh, I, it, it was, it gave you, it gave you stuff to dream, you know, it gave you stuff to imagine. I miss it. I miss the, the, the cultural dimension of the retail experience, which seems to have evaporated. All that's left is the retail experience now. Exactly. Um, I'm sure there, there are exceptions. I mean, there's a store called Book Bazaar in Ottawa, which is a fantastic bookstore with, uh, the staff is interested in what you're interested in. There's great discussion. The books are all willy-nilly all over the place. There's too many books. Um, it's super fun. Um, and uh, But that used to be, like, you used to find a place like that on every street corner, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, world's biggest bookstore in, in, in Toronto, if that, if that was around. Oh, were, of course. It was, it was nearby. Of course, yeah, it was, it was just around the corner. That wasn't my favorite one, but it was it was big. It was the world's that biggest. That was a very different vibe because it was mile after mile of fluorescent lit shelves. Yeah, and so it felt like you were just in a warehouse. It felt like a very unromantic place, but you would find the craziest you shit. You would in find there. crazy stuff, and uh, 
I think Book City still exists, which is a or an amazing bookstore in uh, in Toronto and BMV, which is anyways. We're gonna start listing off. Sorry, um, uh, there Tor- are Toronto retail few... locations. Yes, this is. I believe there's a yeah. powerful demand for this kind of content. <laughs> the point is that. There is a curatorial aspect to any of these places necessarily because somebody had to manage it. Somebody had to stock it. Yeah. And so it it always had the imprint of- Of personality. individual, of a person. Yeah, personality. And uh, yeah. there, there's this one bookstore, speaking of rude shop owners, there's a place called Seeker Books. Remember Seeker Books on Bloor? It was downstairs uh, right at the end of- I um, don't remember that. Of Howland. Uh, maybe it wasn't there yet. I think it was though. Wait, that guy was exploring Howland. Rude. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I lived at in the that end of Howland. When what what year? What, what years were you? Can you affirm that that shop existed? Boy, this has got to be really really boring for listeners. Yeah, this is top notch content. <laughs> two, year two thousand to two thousand to now. Okay, well that's that, still that was after my mom moved out of the annex and I, yeah, but it was I an was, old bookstore yeah. when I knew it. Okay. So I'm pretty sure it was there. Anyways, let's let's just drop this like a hot potato. <laughs> this is not interesting. Well, I kind of feel like um, what we were talking about, maybe more broadly, is a little bit interesting. Is what it is. Yeah, you get personalities out of the shop, and all that's left is the retail experience. Yeah. Um, I was. I saw, Which is not a pleasant experience. You know, I saw something that somebody posted in the fan Discord about inst- the like devastation caused by Instagram on our design aesthetics. Like Mm. that there's been this immense standardization of like interior design aesthetics, especially as pertains to restaurants, bars, coffee houses, et cetera. And I wish I had bookmarked this because it was such a good uh, kind of photo essay. It had, you know, an essay, but it was elaborately illustrated. And it was just showing how there's this really bland Instagram aesthetic that has infected pretty much every new coffee shop that opens up is going to be Instagrammable. Uh, and 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 I lack the vocabulary even to say exactly what that is. But it's uh, but it's true. There's this kind of antiseptic. It's like antiseptic yeah, co- uniformity. Yeah, antiseptic coziness. Attempts at co- totally artificial, contrived attempts at creating a kind of a cozy coffee shop aesthetic. Whereas the things that make coffee shops like your favorite coffee shop special, it's a, like a little bit of crustiness, right? Uh, that, that's a word you used earlier in this conversation. I feel like every good shop needs to be a little bit crusty and I'm not even going to define what I mean by that, but like that little bit of crust, the crust of the human, you need a little little bit lived in. It needs to be a little lived in. Yeah. And, and that Instagram aesthetic is not lived in. It can't be made lived in like jeans you buy with holes already in them. That's true. (laughs) Gotta earn the tears in your jeans. Yeah. I don't know. It's, um. I know that the best-selling wall paint today is gray, which, uh, I mean, I, I like a gray wall. I have nothing against it particularly, but it's weird that that would be the, the, the go-to color. I know that both you and I are fans of colorful walls because I've been it's to your true. house. Um, I like color, uh, despite the fact that I wear only black. That's just because I want to contrast with my colorful surroundings all the more starkly. <laughs> um, so I like color. and. Um, 
I was, I've been reading, I'm doing a lot of research about Eastern Europe recently uh, for this game I'm running. Um, it's just on my spare time, but I've been reading a lot about how people shopped in the Soviet Union, that sort of thing. And it's, it's weird. It feels weirdly timely now to be weird <laughs> reading this. <laughs> the uniformity of the uh, so-called, the, the, the department stores in the Soviet Union. So every town had this department store. Uh, it was always the same everywhere. Um, and because they had to assure, ensure that everyone had a job, right? Because they had no unemployment, the process of buying something was horrible. Like um, there were three lineups, three lines you had to wait in. The first line was to tell the person what you wanted, uh, and they had a staff person to just handle that. So to and you can't, you couldn't access the shelves, right? right? It cha this changed over time, but at some point, it's like the old brewer's retail. Yeah, exactly. In Ontario. Yeah. It's felt very familiar to me in that sense. Um, so you had to go and tell somebody what you wanted to buy. Then you had to wait in another line to pay. And then you had to wait in another line to pick it up. And there was never a moment where you could actually interact with the goods because first of all, there was just one brand for everything, right? Because it was all central command economy. Um, so the experience of going was it was it was just reduced to the retail experience at its most at its, at its most essential. And now what we have is an extremely aestheticized version of that though. Yeah. It's always the same thing. Go to any Starbucks. It's, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I do know what you mean. And, 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 and all the other coffee shops have simply, well, not all, but many of them have evaporated. And the ones that are left have to be tailor-made to this aesthetic you're talking about or yeah. made in to please, to, to, to make great Instagram pictures. Um, so you end up with the same type of weird, bland uniformity, slightly more aesthetic, but that's just, it's almost like a cosmetic difference between our experience now and whatever people were experiencing in like the early 50s in Stalinist Russia. Yeah, I feel like there's a much larger conversation to be had about the weird resonances between like living in a socialist command economy um, and all and of a, the- And a late capitalist. Yes, because there's some- <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> but I, the Uruburos is complete. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, yeah uh, because I mean the 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 experience you just described that just sounds like going to a dispensary in Chicago, right? Yeah, and it and it's funny because a dispensary is going to be at pains to disguise the bleak, gray, uh, like you know, Brezhnev era Soviet Union sort of flavor of the consumer experience, the retail experience with candy colored wrappers and like, you know, crazy weed names and like all of the yeah. kind of design aesthetics of the cannabis industry. Everything's bright colors. It's very sort of a kind of infantilized aesthetic. Um, it's a adult aesthetic, uh, but it is just um, hiding the gray droning bland yeah. uh uniformity of the uh of the that is the the deep experience i'm imagining uh rowdy roddy piper with his magic sunglasses walking into dispensary and seeing what's actually going on exactly it's just like a bunch of like people in in leather boots and with like kind of worn out woolen caps buying like potatoes or something like that. <laughs> that's what's really good. 
What a great mental image. Yeah, you put on the sunglasses and you see what's yeah. actually going on. <laughs> That's a potato you're smoking. This does feel like a uh, timely conversation that we're talking about retail and it is the holiday season. I am going right. to just be real and say I love uh, buying presents for people. I am not oh, affecting to be superior to the consumer economy. Not in any way. I love buying shit for people. I love Me too. the, uh, I don't, I mean, obviously we all have to define our limits uh, as to how much consumerism we're willing to go along with, but I'm willing to go along with a certain amount at Christmas time. So. Uh, well, I've always, I've always liked, I, I don't like the weird conflation today between a particular brand of capitalism and trade in general. Yes, that's right. Like, yeah. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, that's very true. I, 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 stuff is good. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff out there and it, you know, it's, it only makes sense that you have to buy some of it. Um, <laughs> so I do enjoy shopping as well. Um, sometimes <laughs> at Christmas time, yes. it's very limited. Yeah. There's a small window where I can get into the spirit. Um, yeah, I, I like this time of year. You know, I really enjoy it. You sent me that, or on the Discord the other night, you posted that you were Christmasing the fuck out. Yes. Um. Yeah, we did it the next day, Um. and I like Christmasing the fuck out. Oh, and that includes yeah. shopping for gifts. Yeah. And in, in overly overcrowded shopping malls. I don't care. I just I just enjoy the feeling. Listening to awful Christmas music. I love Christmas the feeling music. of stepping out, stepping out into the bitter cold with your bags of gifts and... um. Out of the hum, shopping mall. Humming along with All I Want for Christmas is You. Yeah. Which is a terrible, <laughs> yeah, terrible it. song. And and yet, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's part of Christmas. Yeah. No, I just take it all. Yeah. yeah. I did. I was a little, um, I was in Atlanta recently and um, in the hotel I was staying at, they were blasting the worst Christmas music. It was like re-recordings or recent iterations of classic songs. And it's like the melody was absent. It was just runs. Like the singers were just like doing oh, oh, like just vocal runs. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There was like, there was, you needed to know the song to be able to identify which Christmas carol this was because they had gone to town on it. And it's like, that's it's so like, funny. It was just like a, a vocal, sh like a vocal showing off a or something. A it was melismatic weird. Christmas. You know, though, this is, <laughs> this has happened repeatedly in music history. So if you go back to the very beginnings of notated music, notated compositions, go back to like the 13th century, uh, early 14th century, where you start seeing notated polyphonic compositions. In other words, compositions where, like you start off, the very earliest notated music in the West is single line, like plain chant, where there's just a single melody, right? But then, you know, the, the, and this is just such a fundamental human thing, uh, this, the, you want to find ways to ornament it and you, and you will jam more and more ornamentation and elaboration into all available space. So like, Hey, what if we sing another line along with that line? So now there's two right. lines. We've got a, we've got the beginnings of polyphony. We have a, a single counterpoint, right? And I'm like, well, what if we do two lines with that? Right. And then there are moments in plain chant where it gets mel melismatic on particular words, the original plain chants, it might be a mostly syllabic style of setting where it's like one syllable per note or one note per syllable. But on certain words, like 
you know, we want to kind of elaborate it. And so there's going to be like a notated melisma there. And then we're like, oh, what if we just take that melisma and take it out of context and build a whole new contrapuntal or polyphonic composition just on that? And then right. it's just like, okay, so how about if each note of that original melisma becomes like a drone pitch, like 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 a single note in a fucking sun song that they hold for 25 <laughs> fucking seconds. And then we yeah. start writing melismas over that and you end up with stuff like, you know, Periton's Sederunt, um, which is a fucking metal piece. I recommend it to anybody's attention who's listening to this, Periton's Sederunt. Uh, So-called because the entire piece, and it's like a 10 minute long piece, is based on the uh, plain originally the plain chant uh associated with a single word sederunt which means seated i think wow. from seated at the right hand of the father yeah right so it's one part of the credo yeah and and it's and it's, just, and it's yeah. like this towering edifice this this chartre of polyphony erected on a single word and it is a among other things a monument to this human uh and and frankly endearing quality that human beings have of just embroidering the fuck out of everything and also when you find a way out uh, a line of flight from a, an established formula you will just chase it yes and i know because i i took a there was one lecture in this class I took as an undergraduate um, on medieval civilization. There was one on music, and uh, we looked at polyphony. And by the end of the 14th century, polyphony had gone nuts. Yes. It was like polyphony gone wild. Yeah. <laughs> it was like there were lots of lines. It was all, it was, to me, it sounded cacophonous. Yeah. Um, but that's because they were finding out what the limits were, and there was some reining in after, and, you know, I don't know how it And by the late out, 14th century, they're like, hey, what if every line of a polyphonic composition has a different text, and they're all singing them at the same time? Right. And, and then some <laughs> asshole's like, oh, I got it. What if they're all in different languages? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you just see it, one line of flight after another. Yeah, exactly. But then and then there's this tempering that happens and uh it, you know that's how things develop so i love those moments of excess where things just go completely off the rails much like our patreon extra episodes <laughs>